morning we will be turning to Paul's letter to Titus near the end of the New Testament. If you've reached the epistle to the Hebrews, you've gone too far. Go back a bit to the left. The text we're going to look at closely is from Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. But as we continue in this short sermon series during this time of officer nominations at Christ Church, we have been looking at the nature of the offices of elder and deacon. Two weeks ago, we looked at the elder and the tasks that the elder has entrusted to him. Last week, we looked at the importance of the office of deacon and the ministry that is entrusted to the deacons. Now, this week, we're going to look at the qualification for both elder and deacon, the the character qualifications of men for these offices. And so, we're going to look closely at this text in Titus, but it is paralleled by another letter that Paul has written to another pastor, Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so after I read the text in Titus, we're going to turn to 1 Timothy 3 so you can hear the repetition and also so you can hear the explicit inclusion of deacons in these character requirements. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Titus chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to a charge of debauchery and insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And now turning back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, 
They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their, li- their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word. That you would help us, O Lord, to see your will for your church. That you are indeed the sovereign king, not only of all things, but particularly over your redeemed people, the church. And so we ask this morning that by your Holy Spirit, that we might not only learn from your word, but that we might be changed by it. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. So this is the third in our short four-sermon series about Jesus' leaders in the church. We've looked with Peter at 1 Peter chapter 5 at the office of elder and primarily what elders are called to do. And then we turn to Acts chapter 6 and the importance of the office of deacon and what deacons are called to do. And now this week, we go primarily to Titus chapter 1, but I read 1 Timothy 3, and you should have heard all of the similarities to see the character requirements for elder and deacon. Because we can too often get caught up in the skill requirements for any position. And this is true in any business, in any educational institution. We can get too caught up in, can the person do the job right? Rather than, is this person right for the job? And that's even more important in the church of Jesus Christ. Because what God is looking for is not just the most efficient ministers or the men who are most likely to serve well. No, he's looking for men who are gifted by himself, who are godly and who express the character of godliness formed in them by the work of the Holy Spirit founded on the merit of Jesus Christ. And so, as we come to this text, we're going to break this up into two broad parts. As we look at leaders in the church, elders and deacons, first, we must see who he is. That is, what a leader looks like. And then secondly, we will look at what he knows. Because there is a knowledge component here, not just for elders who are apt to teach. You may recall, if we go back briefly to 1 Timothy 3, you will see that deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And they must have good standings for themselves and confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So, while deacon, the office of deacon is not one primarily of teaching, that does not mean that you don't need to know your Bible. And that you don't need to know theology in order to be equipped as a deacon. You do. Those requirements are the same. I've mentioned this before. Really the only difference 
in the character and the requirements between elder and deacon is that elders are specifically called to be able to teach. And of course, deacons can teach. We see that in Philip and in Stephen in the book of Acts. So what I'd like us to do as we look at these two aspects of leaders, the very first thing I want to do is set the context for you of what Paul is doing. Paul is writing here and in 1 Timothy a pastoral epistle. Now, that doesn't mean that these are the only two letters in which Paul is pastoral. If you've read the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians or the book of Philippians, you know that Paul is always pastoral in what he does. Rather, these letters or epistles are called the pastoral epistles because they are written from Paul to pastors. Titus is a pastor of the church in Crete, which is an island off, a large island off the coast of Greece. Timothy is a pastor in a city in what is now modern Turkey, what it was then called Asia or Asia Minor, Antioch one of the largest cities in all of the Roman Empire. And so we have here Paul giving advice about leadership in the church. And one of the first things that I want you to see is that this direction is the same for a small church in kind of a backwater area of Crete as it is in the cosmopolitan third largest city in the Roman Empire in Antioch. There's no difference too often in our day and age, we look at a man and we say, well, you know, maybe he could serve in a rural area, but surely he doesn't have the gifts for a city. No. God's saying that the character requirements are the same for all leaders in his church, no matter where they live, no matter how big or how small their church is. I also want you to see that Paul is writing this to Titus because he is pastoring a church that is young. It's a church that's young and tends toward immorality. Elsewhere, Paul quotes a proverb that says that the Cretans are all liars. And he compares them to a standard of sinners. It was a byword that Cretans are lazy and liars. And so, Titus here is pastoring a church of people who have left their homeland, so to speak, their given nature, so to speak, and who have by faith followed Jesus. And when you follow Jesus by faith, you will never be the same again. I don't care where you're from, or where you grow up, or what kind of family you had, or how much money you have. When you come to Jesus by faith, you are changed forever. Because <coughs> you are brought from death to life, from darkness to light. You are born Again, we've seen this over and over again in John chapter 3. And so Paul is talking to those who have been made anew by the power of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. And he is telling Titus that you need to bring men alongside you to do this work, to disciple others, to build them up in the faith. Now, here's another context that we need to understand that cuts against most of modern evangelical so-called Christianity. What Paul is saying here is, Titus, you can't go this alone. It's not just your way or the highway. You're not in charge of everything. You're not calling all the shots. And far too often in 21st century American Christianity and churches, 
there is one man who has a vision of a ministry and he strikes out on his own and does everything himself. I could name names for you, but I won't depress you with men who have gone out that way and who have fallen and the entire ministry that they have fashioned has vanished. Churches of thousands no longer in existence. You see, Paul is telling us that the way to build a church is through leaders, plural. And he wants Titus to be able to spot these leaders. And more than that, he's written this not just to Titus, but under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's written it to you and to me also, so that we can spot leaders. This is for us as well. Well, what does Paul tell us to look for? What is God's design for leaders in the church, elders and deacons? First, broadly speaking, you'll see him begin here in verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, and that word should ring in your ears. Because not only does it occur here in verse 6, it occurs again in verse 7. And I read it a couple of times in 1 Timothy 3. It's pretty important to Paul. This idea of being above reproach. And what that means is, is that a leader in Christ's church must be a man of high character. He must be above reproach, not someone who can have an accusation brought against him. Now what this does not mean is that you need to be perfect to be a leader in the church. You don't need to be sinless to be a leader in the church. Because there's only been one person in the history of the world who has been sinless. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would go so far as to say, if you are speaking with someone, and they downplay their sin, if they say, well, you know, I'm sinless. Well, maybe not all the time, but I think last week I was able to go without sinning. Or, you know, yesterday I worked really hard. I don't think I sinned once. That is a perfect way to know they are unqualified for the job because they don't realize that they're a sinner and they therefore don't realize their absolute need for the Savior. You see, to be a leader in Christ's church requires us to know that we are saved by grace and that without the work of Jesus Christ, we are lost forever and will perish eternally. But to be above reproach means to be of high character, to be someone who is seen as following the word of God. Not in every single instance, not in every way never sinning, but in the main, not caught up in binding sins or entangling sins, not sinning over and over again, not known as a liar, known as a thief, known as a slanderer, but to be known generally for godliness. And then Paul begins to say where this will show up and what it will look like so that we can see what this looks like. And the first place he begins is in the family of a man. And you may recall, as I read 1 Timothy 3, Paul said, because if a man cannot manage his household, he will not be able to serve and manage the household of God. The household of God is far more difficult to manage than a family. Now, I know some of you say, Pastor, have you seen my kids? Have you seen how many kids I have? Yes, I have. And I understand that that is a hard thing to manage a family. But my response is, have you looked around this room? Have you seen how many types of people there are? And how many people of different ages there are? It's hard to manage the household of God. And so he begins 
with the man's marriage. He says, if he is the husband of one wife. Now, once again, I'll just say briefly what I said last week. It requires incredible exegetical gymnastics and a denial of the inspiration of the word of God to say that an officer, an elder or a deacon in Christ's church may be a woman. And that is not because women are not capable. It's not because women can't understand the word of God. It's not because women can't be encouragers. It's not because women aren't essential to the ministry of the church. It's because God in his infinite wisdom has chosen his leaders from among men. Now, lest we men get conceited, think about what Paul is saying here. The very first thing that Paul wants you to look at with respect to a man's qualification is not his skill, it's not his ability to teach, it's not what he does for a living. Paul says, look at the man's wife. Look and see how he takes care of his wife. Look and see how he helps sanctify his wife. Look and see how he prays for his wife. Look and see how he treats his wife. That's where Paul starts there. Now, I have to say something else here about this. Some of us look at this text and we see the husband of one wife and think, well, that means no one who is single could possibly be an officer in the church. Now, I do not think that's what this means. Now, why do you say that, Pastor? Are you just saying that for convenience sake? No. Because the one who writes that to be a leader, you must be a husband of one wife, himself, has no wife. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul actually says, I would that all were like I am, single, so that I would have more time to pour into the ministry. But because we can't all be like that, I suggest that you marry. The other thing that we need to be very careful is, do not ever make a, a rule for godliness and leadership that Jesus doesn't qualify for. If it were a rule or a law that could not be changed, that the only way you could be an officer is to be one who is married, then Jesus doesn't qualify. And I don't like your interpretation then. And so if a man is single, he's not barred from office. If a man is widowed, he's not barred from office. But the principle still applies, because if we were to look at this phrase, husband of one wife, it could also be translated to give you a sense, a one-woman man. Now, what does that mean? Well, obviously, in the instance of a married man, it means he's devoted to that one woman. He's not married to more than one woman. He doesn't have a wife and several other ladies on the side. It means that he is a man committed to biblical fidelity and faithfulness with respect to relationships and sexuality. Now, how does a single man be known as a one-woman man? Well, see how a single man treats other single women. See how he treats his mother. See how he treats his sisters. You see... This is more about how a man treats others in relationship than about the institution of marriage per se as a box to check. Even in the instance of a man who's married, we want to see how he treats his sisters, how he treats his mother, how he treats his daughters, and how he treats other women in the congregation. What this means is, this is not a man who constantly has whiplash in a restaurant as women are walking by. This is not a man who stays up late at night watching cable TV. 
This is not a man who lingers over fashion magazines. He's committed to faithfulness. He's committed to his wife. He's committed to modesty. Well, then Paul writes that his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And again, I think if we're too quick and too literal with this, we can mistake Paul's meaning. Because if literally what Paul means is a man has to have believing children, children who are believers, then we're immediately caught with a dilemma. Because there is no way for us to know with certainty whether anyone is a believer. That's between you and God. Now we can look at the fruit in a professing believer's life. We can see that they, if they pray, if they read God's word, if they seek to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, if they seek to follow his will, if they preach the gospel, if they share with others, all things that are consistent with that profession of faith. But there's no ultimate way to know whether everyone who makes a profession is indeed a believer. We see this far more often than we would desire in people who fall away from the faith. Used to be, in the old Bible days, they called that apostasy or falling away. Now we call it what? Deconstructing or exconstructing. Or we come up with a new name for it for people who say, yeah, yeah, I was big on this Jesus stuff, but not so much anymore. But So I don't think that's what Paul's getting at here for two main reasons. That would mean every time you had an elder whose wife had a child, he'd be in trouble. Because the last time I looked, babies came out of the womb not singing psalms and professing faith in Christ, but screaming, right? And so we pray for children. We hope and pray that there will be a day when they will profess the Lord Jesus Christ. We disciple them. We teach them. We do everything we can to bring them to a point where they on their own will profess faith. But while that's occurring, that doesn't disqualify a man from office. The other reason why I think this is, it would cut against all of our theology. Because, let me tell you, there is no stern look or finger wag that will turn someone in to a follower of Jesus. As a parent, you can't look at your children and say, All right now, straighten up. Believe in Jesus. Let's go, right now. Right? Now, you could do that with some other things. Clean up your room, wash the dishes, mow the lawn. Not with Jesus. And so, we know from the scriptures that God is the one who is in charge of salvation. Not us. And so, why would Paul make a requirement that we couldn't fulfill? That doesn't make any sense. And so, the reason why I think this is, this word, believers, is also translated in other translations. Your translation here may have a footnote. Or, are faithful. And the reason it could be translated our faithful is because this Greek word, it's pistos, it's the word that we use for either to have faith in Jesus or to be faithful. It it comprises both meanings. And I think it has the meaning here of faithfulness because of how Paul explains it in the rest of the sentence. They are to be not open to a charge of debauchery or insubordination. So what Paul means here is your children need to be under control. They can't be insubordinate. They can't be uh, sinning wildly while they're under your authority and your control. Because that would mean you don't know how to manage your household. And how are you going to manage the household of God? Now one final point on this. 
Some of you know this better than others. As your children grow older, you have far less control over them. When they leave the home, you can still testify to them. You can bring the gospel to them. You can bring the Bible to bear on them. You can pray for them. But you can't make them live in accordance with your wishes. Because they're not under your home. They're not under your authority. And so, again, I don't think that's what Paul means here. He means to say that if someone is to be a leader, his household needs to be in order and look a certain way. Well, not only does Paul have us look at the man's home and family, he has us look at the man himself. Look with me at verse 7. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So what Paul says is a man has to have, basically speaking, mastery over himself, self-mastery. He can't be given to other sins. He can't be the slave to sin. This is just echoing Jesus' words when he says, you cannot serve both God and money. Either you will serve the one or you will serve the other. You cannot serve both. And that's what Paul's saying here. You can't be a servant to drink or to your temper or to greed and serve God. And so he gives us the negative first. He says that a man who is a leader is not to be arrogant. And this word means not to be willful. Not to think constantly in terms of self-importance. I'm the only one that matters. I'm the one that's important. You need to listen to me. Now, the problem here is, is that that defines much of leadership in the world today. I know what I'm doing. Follow me or get out of my way. I don't want any input. I just want you to do what I tell you to do. That's not the way you lead in the church. You're not to be arrogant or willful. And then a combination there, you're not to be, Paul says, quick-tempered. Now, this does not again mean that you can never have anger or a temper ever. Paul had a temper. Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple. But Jesus' temper was completely under control. He was being righteously indignant at the sin that was before him. Someone who's quick-tempered is the kind of person they walk in the room and everybody kind of hushes up and doesn't want to say anything that could possibly set that man off. Right? It's like you're just waiting for him to explode. I like to think of it this way. Have you ever watched an action movie where a car, after a car chase, overturns and the, the gas tank ruptures and the filmmaker shows you the gas spilling out and pooling around the car? And then usually he zooms in a little ways away on a spark or a flame and you watch that gas go slowly towards the flame and then it catches and then whoosh! And then the entire car explodes. That's how you think about someone who's quick-tempered. They're just one minute away from explosion. And Paul says you can't be a leader and be like that. He says you can't be a drunkard. And again, I think this word is broader than we would first interpret it to mean. It doesn't just mean you shouldn't be addicted to beer or to wine or strong drink. Although I think... That applies. You shouldn't be one who gets drunk. I think it means also you shouldn't be under the control of anything, whether it be drink or a substance or anything else. So 
I think it's a proper application of this to say that a man should not be a leader in Christ's church if he is under the control of or addicted to video games or to his hobbies or to any other thing. If he loves that thing more than Jesus and Jesus' people, he shouldn't be a leader. Now again, that doesn't mean that you can't ever play a video game. You can. You can have a hobby. You can have a drink. You just can't be addicted to it. You can't be a slave to it. You can't have it be of primary importance for you. He's not to be someone who is violent. And this really has the connotation of being a bully. It's not just someone who throws punches or pushes someone. They're a bully in how they do it. You don't want bullies in the church. Now, if you've had any experience in a church, you see how wise Paul is for saying this. Because people think often the church is a safe place to bully others. Because everybody else is supposed to be kind and loving and gentle. And so if you want to be a bully, that's a good place to be. And so what Paul says is you should never put someone like that in leadership. And then finally he says he should not be greedy for gain. This is the same word that we looked at earlier in 1 Peter chapter 5. Shameful gain, dishonest gain. And so... A man should not seek his own advancement through leadership. Then Paul gives us a series of positive traits. And I find this is very interesting. If I were to ask you what's the most important, the first trait you'd think of in a leader in the church, what would you say? I think for many of us they would say, well, he's got to be able to teach. He's got to be knowledgeable in the Bible. He's got to have a listening ear. He's got to be caring. Do you see what Paul says is first? It's hospitable. Now, do you wonder about that? See, I think we just think of hospitality as putting out the fine china and having people over for dinner. No, in the Bible, hospitality means more than that. It means putting yourself out for others. It means putting others before yourself. And so you can see why in that context, that's first for Paul. The leader in the church of Jesus Christ is to be someone who serves others. The first must be last. And of course, that describes perfectly our Lord Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. He is to be a lover of good. Now, if you wonder what that means, I would invite you to go to Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and following, where Paul tells us that we are to Think on, dwell on what is beautiful, what is right, what is good. So a leader in the church should be thinking about what's good. He shouldn't constantly be negative. A leader in the church is not someone who's constantly pointing out problems and never has any solutions. A leader in the church is not someone that spots every possible conspiracy theory in the world to complain about. He should be drawing people to God's goodness and his beauty and his faithfulness. He's to be self-controlled, Paul says. That is prudent and thoughtful. He's to be upright, law-abiding, we might put it. He's to be a man of justice. He's not trying to cut corners. He's not trying to be deceptive. He's trying to be honorable before the Lord and others. And even more than that, Paul says he is to be holy, that is devout and pious. And again, this gets us back to 
far too often a problem in the modern American church. We look at a man and his skill set and his job and we say, well, he obviously should be a leader in the church. He's a wealthy doctor. He's a well-known lawyer. This guy's a great mechanic. He'd make a great deacon. We, we look at that. Paul says we need to look first at godliness. If he doesn't meet the test of godliness, it doesn't matter what he does. Now, you certainly can have, and I've known plenty of godly doctors, lawyers, and mechanics. But we look at the skill set after we look at their piety. And then Paul sums all this up in this final word in verse 8. He is to be disciplined. He has his impulses under control. He's not swayed one way or the other. He's under control under the word of God. That describes the leader in the church. Well, we've seen who the leader is. But we also need to see what the leader knows. Paul tells us this in verse 9. He says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the very first thing that we know is that he must be a man of knowledge. He must hold firm to this knowledge. And this word, hold firm, is very vivid. The best way that I can illustrate it for you is this. Have you ever tried to take a toy away from a five-year-old? You say, give me that. And they say, no, I don't know. And you say, give me that. And they say, no. And you go to their hand and you try to take it out of their hand. And it is amazing how powerful a five-year-old hand is. What you end up having to do is to peel off finger by finger until they lose the grip on the toy and then you get it, right? That's how this man is to hold on to the Word of God. He does, it doesn't slip through his fingers. He doesn't leave it somewhere and forget about it. No, it's something he holds fast to. He's eager to obtain it and he clings to it. And he has a zeal for this word because he knows it's trustworthy. It is the trustworthy word. Here again is that same word, pistos, faithful, faith. It is a faithful word. It is a trustworthy word. And he bases his life on it. And you can obviously see why that's important in a leader. Because who would listen to a leader talk about a word that he didn't have trust in? Right? You would never do that. You, you listen to someone that knows what they're doing, has trust in what they know and what they believe, and will trust their own life upon it. You know, if you ever do electrical work with someone, and someone says, you need to uh, move that wire here or there, usually what I say is, well, you touch the wire first. If you're willing to touch the wire, I'm all over the wire. Right? Because if he says, well, no, I want you to touch the wire because I'm not sure that the power... No, thank you, sir. No, I'm not the guinea pig here. Right? Think about how much more important that is with eternal life and death. A leader needs to be someone who bases his life upon the word. And it's a trustworthy word that is taught. He understands the word because he's been taught it. There is a link back to the apostles and their doctrine, to the word of God and their doctrine. Now, let me tell you this. If anyone comes up to you and they say, listen, I've been reading, and I'll just pick a passage, Romans 8. 
And I think I have come up with a very new and interesting and faithful way to understand this passage. No one has ever thought of this. Run. I guarantee you he's wrong. And he's probably heretically wrong. Why? Because the Holy Spirit would not leave the church of Jesus Christ in doubt about what the Bible means for 2,000 years. It didn't just get found out last Tuesday. No. No, we follow in the trustworthy teaching of the Word of God. That's why Paul says to Timothy that he teaches Timothy so that Timothy may teach faithful men, that they may teach others as well. That's what teaching looks like with the Word of God. But this kind of knowledge doesn't just remain in the head. Look at how Paul ends this sentence. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There is application expressed here. There is purpose. The reason the leader knows these things is for the purpose of instructing others in sound doctrine, in giving instruction, in building others up. The leader doesn't just play trivia games. He doesn't just want to show others how much he knows. He teaches others and builds them up so that they might be built up in sound doctrine. Now this word sound here is the word that we get our phrase hygiene or hygienic from. It's sound. It's healthy. It promotes good health. That's what Paul is saying here. But it's not just enough to give people what's right. You also need to be able to spot what's wrong and fight what's wrong. Paul says to rebuke those who contradict it. We need to defend the word of God and the truth of God. Now this doesn't cancel out the requirements of verse 7 to not be quick-tempered, to not be violent. You can be a defender of God's word and not be obnoxious. It's possible, trust me. But you see, we have to be ready to defend God's word, especially in our day and age. Because in our day and age, the word of God is coming under attack from all quarters. And we need to stand and lead the church of Christ in the truth. The goal here is to protect the church and to win over those who are contradicting. Well, Paul lays out here these requirements for leaders, elders, and deacons. And it's crucial that he does, and he does it not just once, but twice in two letters, to underscore the importance of this. Because if the church's history is any measure, the church far too often has put in place its leaders not with an eye toward these requirements but with an eye toward many other things. And when the church does, it meets disaster. And so as you prayerfully are considering nominating men for the office of elder and the office of deacon, and I want to encourage you that I want you to prayerfully consider doing that. There are the forms out in the lobby. You need to fill them out, sign your name so we know you're a communicant member, and give them to any of the pastors or any of the members of session. I want you to participate in this process. But as you do that, these requirements must be foremost in your mind. You must see men exhibiting these characteristics in the church, in their family, in the community. Because that is how God has intended to build His church. Let's pray.